You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. This week's guest features a former Navy SEAL with multiple deployments overseas who currently runs one of the most important veteran nonprofit organizations out there. He's the communications director for the Navy SEAL Foundation. We'll get to that story coming up in just a few moments. First, our normal announcements. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Give a thumbs up and a like to the content there. Uh, as well, continue to leave us reviews on uh, Apple Reviews, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a thumbs up, uh, five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. I uh, want to remind you guys as well that we have some uh, sticker swag. If you guys are into uh, some swag, we have some stickers for you. So all you got to do is hit us up uh, on social media or on our website, hazardground.com. Uh, send us your address, and I'll send you guys out some stickers in the mail just to uh, continue to uh, show some love to the Hazard Ground community. So uh, also on our website is our Amazon promotion Go to the bottom of the homepage on hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button. Uh, it'll redirect you to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show, like the Navy SEAL Foundation. So please, a great way to help out all veterans charities by just going to hazardground.com first before you do your, your Amazon shopping. With that out of the way, this week's guest is a former – Navy SEAL graduated from the Naval Academy, actually one of the top academy, one of the top graduates at the Naval Academy, spent a total of 20 years in the Navy in special operations between active duty and reserves. Uh, he went on to have several titles post-career, including being the president of Killcliffe, a company we know well here at the Hazard Ground. He is currently the current, uh, the the communications director, the current communications director of the Navy SEAL Foundation. As well, he's a singer-songwriter whose original works include the score and song Sacrifice from the film Murph the Protector. If you've guys seen it about the Navy, Navy, Navy SEAL Michael Murphy, who received the Medal of Honor. Of course, you know that movie uh, that we've all seen, Lone Survivor, uh, that is about Michael Murphy as well. And he is Chris Irwin joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> all right. So uh, Navy SEAL singer-songwriter. I just always put those two <laughs> together in the same sentence uh not really but it's great to have you here and, and uh look uh, some background here on how and chris and i connected because i always think this stuff is important um i had a a friend who was uh in trouble and uh, she was married to a former navy seal and i had reached out to a couple of people and they had put me in touch with chris um as a former navy seal and the, and the foundation to help them out so um, you know, the Navy SEAL Foundation, one of those amazing organizations uh, that helps their former warriors uh, in all sizes, shapes and forms. So uh, and then after talking to Chris for a little bit and doing a little research, I'm like, wow, Chris has got a pretty good story. So we want to hear about it. So, again, thank you for your help. It's great to connect with you. And and you and I, when we started talking, remember going back to our Kill Cliff days uh, when uh, I think we spoke back then. It was yeah, like, I think so. Yeah, I, I think we had a chat back then. We didn't do it here on the Hazard Ground, but I think we did it for. Uh, the Kill Clip podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant informally. No, you're right. At some yeah. point, we did, yeah, we, we did do something like that. Uh, and oh, I don't, yeah, yeah. There were, I think there were multiple people on that yes. episode, right? Yeah. yeah. So yep. we, 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 we have crossed this path before, but now we're here to hear your story. 
And it starts uh, back at the beginning. I mean, I told you went to the Naval Academy. Was that something you always wanted to do? I mean, was was that what you had your sights set on, or where did that come into play? Yeah, I, I always tell people I'm, the, I'm a member of the Top Gun generation. So I saw I saw Top Gun when I was 11, I think, and um, and just thought, well, that's really cool. Like you can you can do that as a job. <clears throat> I, I don't come from a military family really at all. My grandfather was in World War II, but. Uh, but drafted into it. Um, so it's, I don't have some long lineage of military uh, family members, certainly not my immediate family. Um, I'm just somebody who, you know, again, I saw that movie and I was like, that's cool. That's really kick-ass. I didn't, I didn't know you could do that as a job. And so from that point on, it was like, well, let me, how do you do that? Um, and my father, I think was really excited because if I went to the Naval Academy, he didn't have to pay for college. So to him, it was great. Let's go look at the Naval Academy. So we went and looked at the Naval Academy and it just, there was something about it that always appealed to me. It was the, um, I think the structure and the discipline and sort of the cleanliness, like I'm a very sort of clean, fastidious type of person. And that order and discipline appealed to me. And I liked trying to find the, the most difficult path too. I was, I liked that. And so even though that my initial idea was, Hey, I'll go be a fighter pilot. Like when I learned about, uh, seals, that was, it was like, Oh, that's even harder. Like that's even cooler. Let me go in that direction. Yeah. What you realize is like the hardest part of being Tom Cruise and Top Gun is just actually flight school. Like after that, it's not really, you know, difficult. It's I don't know just, anything about being a pilot. I, I, know, I. I know plenty of them, but I don't know at, at all what that's like, yeah. nor would I want to. I mean, I think the funny thing for me now is like, I don't, Flying doesn't appeal to me. I don't even really like flying on commercial airlines. No. no, yeah. So the idea, the idea of doing that as a career now, in retrospect, is like, why would I? I wouldn't want to do that. That doesn't even sound good. Yeah, flying commercially doesn't appeal to to me at all. But that's basically because of we suck as Americans <laughs> flying. Like we're just the most idiotic people. Like I've always said, flying brings out the lowest common denominator of stupid in everybody. People act oh. like they've never been in an airport before. Oh, yeah. Well, you mean passengers. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Like, I guess if it was just like you and I in a plane and you were flying and I was sitting behind you, like, okay, all right, that might, that might be. Yeah. Working. I think, I think those scenarios go into the airport or wherever it may be, where there's a lot of people in a big yes. process is just, a, it's an opportunity to improve your mental health. It's an, it's an opportunity to like see if you can be compassionate and patient. And because uh, I'm with you, I mean, yeah, like you go, you, you're sitting there, and the person who doesn't know, like, do I put the shoes in the does do I the, does the laptop come out right, like all that stuff, and you're sitting there rolling your eyes, going, "Come on, really, dude?" Like, yeah, <laughs> but, not paying attention to the TSA agent who's going next, next, yeah, next, right, and, right, and I'm like, dude, yeah, yes, yeah. respect. Tries your patience. It's a it's a it's a good opportunity. It's a learning moment. Yeah, to, see, know, that's that's the, that's the difference. Between, that's why you're a Navy SEAL and I'm not because you look at that perspective and go, this is a great opportunity for learning. I look at this and go, all my stress is going to do is go through the roof. Like I'm well, just punch them. And look, I'm not saying I'm good at it. I'm just saying like, <laughs> that is the attitude we should, probably should take. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go for it. Um. So you graduated at the top of, of your class. Like, I mean, you know, you said you were very, you know, disciplined and fastidious and everything else. Like, was that a goal? Like, did you really say, hey, I'm going to be one of the best midshipmen there ever was, or it just sort of worked out that way? No, no. I mean, I think I was always a good student. Um, uh, just kind of naturally. Um, and I don't mean that to sound arrogant. It's just like, that was like, I was good. School was kind of 
something that came fairly easily, I guess, getting good grades. Oh, I can uh, relate. And um, no, it, it's an interesting thing I talk to my kids about, which is like you, you have the ability to do really well in school. Most people, um, it's just a question if you want to do it or not. And I think sometimes we succumb to ideas of, oh, I'm just not that smart or I'm not that good or blah, 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 whatever. And I would be, I was kind of like an AB student. And then my sophomore year, I got straight A's, like by accident. I didn't really try to do it. Uh, it was just that I got a 4.0. And I remember th- looking at that and thinking, hmm, okay, you can do that. And it's it was sort of just one of those things where I, I had some self-reflection of, all right, you're capable of that even if so you you can't settle for less and that was my attitude going forward so it went from just trying to get good grades and like be a good student to well now you can't settle for anything less than a 4.0 cuz you're capable of it um and i think that that was a really valuable lesson for me because i think it's applicable to a lot of people in a lot of things is that you're capable of more than you think you are and the question is do you want to apply yourself um so, yeah. So from that point on, I was like, I can't get anything less than this. Um, and, you know, again, I, I would say that mantra served you well in the SEAL community. Uh, you know, how much are you capable of, really? That's because that's sort of the test of of the whole deal, right? Like at least getting through buds is, is do you really know what the limits of what you're capable of are and how much are you willing to test them? Well, I think it's applicable to anything. It's sure. It's yeah. like, what are you, you know, I, that is something for everybody to search inside themselves and figure out if you want something, are you capable of it? Now, I think the, the question becomes like in the things, sort of the content that I put out, put out now that's geared towards mental health and mind fitness is um, there's other pieces to it. I think that uh, there's a lot of talk about sort of mental toughness. That's a, that's a really uh, like prevalent topic out there, right. Of just like that, that idea of just like be tough and go and go, go. And the sort of content that I'm doing uh, personally now is geared towards, okay, like, that's great. I think that's a really good message, but there's sort of other pieces to it when we're faced with some of these kind of like mental health challenges that it's not always, it's not actually always about get up earlier, go faster, go harder, do more. Yeah, no, I, I I get it. Um, you mentioned that you sort of came across the whole Navy SEAL thing. Now, again, time frame wise, you had graduated from the academy in a pre nine eleven world. So, yes, the idea of hey, special ops, hey, do cool stuff, hey, kick down doors and go find bad guys wasn't really prevalent in our minds. So, how do you get this idea of you know Navy SEALs and special operations? When do you come across it? Because Correct me if I'm wrong at the Academy. It's not like they necessarily publicize it all that much, or at least didn't back then, right? Yeah, I, I don't know what it's like now at all. Um, well, everybody it, knows it now, right? Like, it's well, just like a common thing. Yes, yeah. And it certainly wasn't back then. It was more um, steeped in mystery and mystique. And there were there were various books out there from the Vietnam era, a couple of them that you would come across. There was the movie with Charlie Sheen that people had seen, but it was very much like you just didn't know a lot about it. And again, that, I think that was part of what um, appealed to me was it was, I always tell people it was like, 
the closest thing you could, in my mind there, it was the closest thing you could get to being like a superhero. And it was like, well, that's cool. Again, like I want to go be a superhero. Right. And we, yeah, you don't even know exactly what it entails. You sort of can glean some things out, out of various sources, but, um, but not highly publicized. So, um, it, but again, it, it was just the, the challenge of it appealed to me. Did, did, did they have somebody come in to speak to you or did you? Well, no, no, I mean, it's, it's look, uh, from a service selection standpoint, it's just like any other, uh, service selection you're going to do. It's just like, if you want to go be a ship driver or a pilot or whatever, I mean, it's, there's still people there that, you know, we talk about that path and there's certain wickets you have to do to qualify for it. And, you know, in, in that regard it's the same thing it's just less people are qualified and less people go do it by a lot so after you graduate what's the timeline like i mean do you go right to buds i mean you know for you and again this is a pre-9-11 world so i'm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to you know remember how things would go well yeah typically you would i i, I went to graduate school for a year so i went uh, wow. overseas and um for i went to england to Cambridge for a year and got a master's degree. And then I went to, but one of them smack kids. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're a 21 year old kid hanging out in England. Yep. That's yep. Like an awesome experience. Yeah, it was, uh, it was awesome. Um, it was, uh, it was interesting because it's, uh, I think back on it now and it's funny, all the, anytime I think you go to something completely new, if you, if you know, absolutely nobody, it takes some getting used to. And I remember the first couple of weeks over there, I was actually a little bit kind of homesick and depressed even. Then things changed completely once I got in a, in a social circle that was fun. Uh, for me, that was the modern pentathlon team, which I joined because it seemed like a good thing for training to keep me kind of physically active, even though I would have done that on my own. But there was running, there was swimming, and then there was these other elements. There's like this air pistol thing that you shoot. And um, and then horseback riding and fencing, which were skills that I had had no experience in. But that's that circle was that group was super fun and just a great group of people. Um, and it was a the teams that were co-ed in the sense that we practice together, compete separately. But there's a, the men's and women's team would um, train together. And man, it was just so much fun. It was such a great experience uh, over there. Really enjoyed that year. Uh, horseback riding and fencing. How British and regal of them. I know it really is. Yeah. It's um, again, nothing I ever would have chosen if I had given it, if I had had an a la carte menu of here are the things you can try and work and compete right. at or never would have chosen that, but it was cool. It was like something interesting to learn to do and, I don't think it was ever really any good at that, but, um, but again, I, it wasn't so much about the sport even. I, get, I think it was about the community. And I think that that's, that's also a really important lesson is that experience over there could have been really sort of about book learning and studying. And, and I did all that, but what made it um, memorable and special for me and enjoyable was the people that I was with. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, you, you went to Bud's after uh, your time over at Cambridge. Did you do a lot of reading up on the whole process or did you try to go in blind? Um, I don't know about reading up. 
uh, I think just physically trying to be prepared uh, was the biggest thing. I mean, I, what did you know about the whole buds process heading? Oh no, um, I knew a fair amount. Okay. Um, there, yeah, there's a there's a program run through the academy, or at least there there used to be, where you you kind of like they expose you to the training modalities to the greatest extent that they could. Um, so no, like I felt like I was as prepared as I could be. When you get there. Uh... Is your level of preparation matching what you're looking at? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I think to the extent that, that you can. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Sure. What was the hardest part about Buds for you? Um, I look, I think the joke is the hardest part is getting up every day. It's, uh, it's the, <laughs> like every day when your alarm clock goes off, that's the, that's the toughest part. It's, um, it's just, look, it's, um, it's just being tired and cold and, and wet. That's what makes it difficult. It's just you're very, very tired and very, very cold and very, very wet for a very, very long time. And that's what's challenging. A lot of the, the, the SEALs and former SEALs that I talk to, I and again, people who are fans of the show have heard me ask this to all of them because I'm always curious of their perspective. But some guys have said, I could handle all the physical stuff easily. I was never worried about that. I was just mentally worried about, you know, how I was going to handle each day. And some guys said, mentally, I was fine. I just didn't know if I was going to be able to hold up physically. Which kind of category were you in? Yeah, okay. So that's an interesting point. And it really speaks to some of the content I do now, personally, which is, I. it's interesting that people separate those two, mental and physical, because... In my estimation, everything is mental. It's you know, like the way you experience something physically is mental, right? It's a mental construct. Anything you feel uh, is is a mental construct. If you didn't have the consciousness to experience that, you wouldn't feel it, right? So, so to me, it's all mental. The reason you decide to pursue that kind of path or decide to go to the gym, that's a decision. That's a choice which means it's a mental, that's a measure of mental discipline. Even in that moment, um, your decision, like if you're super uncomfortable, again, like super tired, super, like what keeps you there? Like it, the pain, you, you say it's physical, but really it's mental. Like you're, that's the way, how you experience it. Um, so I think what people worry about potentially physically is just sort of like breaking, like if you break a bone or you get injured or something like that, right? Um, and that's, Hey, there's nothing you can, you can do about that. So to me, it's a hundred percent a mental thing. 100%. Were there guys who, uh, and, and this is another question I ask a lot because the, the, the experience to me is just unreal. Um, were there guys who, who rang the bell and dropped that you were shocked that did it? And, or were there guys that you looked at it from the beginning? Like, I don't think there's any shot. This guy's going to make it. And all of a sudden they're the ones standing at the end. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I think that goes back to it being a mental thing. And, and the fact that, look, if you could, <clears throat> if there was a scientific, like biological way to pick anybody for any kind of thing that we think of as sort of a physical discipline, whether that's some sort of special operations unit or a, a sport sports team or an Olympic athlete, uh, we would do that because it'd be easy. It'd be like, Hey, we just, we take a blood draw and it's like, this is the, this, these are your guys. Like you, you got it. You didn't right. Simple. We have to do 
uh, long crucibles like that because it's the only way to sort of test people's metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, right? Like their character and their capacity. Um, and that's not shown by what they look like or even their physical fitness scores or anything like that. There's standards you have to meet. And I think that's true. And I think that's valuable. You need that obviously for any type of job, whether it's special operations or cops or firefighters or first, any kind of first responder, anything like that. There's like, okay, we've got a physical standard. You have to meet that. But outside of that, it's like, as long as you pass those standards, everything else is not something you're going to see on the outside. It's not something you're going to, that's revealed in test scores. It's the, it's like dealing with that person and seeing how they react to hardship, seeing how they react to uh, when the chips are down. Like, are they the type of person that is selfish or are they selfless, right? Are they going to help somebody else before they help themselves? Those types of things. And I think quite frankly, if you go through any type of crucible like that, it's going to teach you something about yourself too, where you might, flounder in some way, shape, or form um, along those lines and realize, ooh, you know, hey, I was kind of selfish there and I, I should probably, I need to be like more selfless. I need to kind of help help the team before me. Was there ever a moment you thought that you weren't going to make it? I can think of one moment <laughs> where, I, where I thought that uh, just randomly. I don't know why it sticks in my memory. Um, where I, where I thought I might quit. Um, I think it was a pretty fleeting moment. Look, I, I think anybody, what were, who, what were the circumstances? around? I don't know. I don't know. I think, it, it, you know, it's funny. I'm not even sure it's accurate. Like we, we tend to think our memory is super accurate. And I, I, this is another thing that I, I talk about. Like we think of our memory as sort of this file cabinet where we, the files are all tucked away and it's like, Hey, we want to pull a file out and it's a carbon copy of what happened. And it's not accurate at all. It's not the way memory works. We sort of rebuild them when we think of them, when we do that, they get a little bit altered every single time. So even though we think, Oh, this is exactly how it happened. Like it's, it's not the, that's not true. Um, <clears throat> so I just had this like flash of this moment where I was, you know, sort of like out there in the water thinking that, but um but it, it passed. I don't know. I was, you know, in that moment, I was like, super, again, super tired, uncomfortable, <laughs> cold. And it's, it's like, ugh. Um, but I've had that about anything. I think there's, look, my first couple of weeks at the Naval Academy, I wanted to quit. Uh, I wrote a letter to my father that was like, hey, because, again, I didn't come from this sort of rich tradition of the military, and right. so I was kind of a fish out of water. I came from a very liberal high school in Massachusetts, private high school, where nobody went to the military academies. And so it was, I was weird in that regard. All my friends were off at, you know, other sort of liberal arts colleges around the country. And here I am at the Naval Academy doing the military thing. And it was a real culture shock. And I, I wrote this letter. I don't know if I still have it or if maybe my mother has it. That was like, Hey, I don't know if this is right for me. I hope I'm not letting you down, blah, blah, blah. And my dad wrote me back a letter that I do have. And he just said, Hey, you know, you're never going to let me down, but make sure you're not letting yourself down by doing something like this. And then he had this quote that he always said, which was 
take your responsibilities seriously yourself, not at all. And I don't know if he came up with that or if that's something he stole from somebody else. He probably stole it. I'm sure it's not an original thought. <laughs> but um, it was like, keep your sense of humor, which is to say, like, objectively look at what you're going through and just realize you can kind of, like just laugh about it. And you, amazingly enough, as miserable as it may be, like you can laugh about it. There's those, uh, this is like, um, is it the thir- 13th Warrior? You know that movie, 13th Warrior with um, Antonio Banderas, where he's like the the Muslim dude that's with the Vikings. Like uh, it's a um, uh, John, uh, I can't remember the author's name, but it's it's based on the Eaters of the Dead. I think it's the name of the book. Anyway, those guys, they, when they show these Viking guys, they're out in monstrous sea swells storm it's freezing cold and they're laughing on the ship and you just think god these guys are tough as nails but it's sort of like a okay let's use this like let's laugh right now because why not um anyway the the end of that story is he sent me back in this letter my father this note that said it, it was that like sense of humor don't remove under penalty of law and he made it into one of those mattress tags you know how mattresses have that thing that says like, yeah. don't remove under yeah. penalty of law so that's what it was it was like a fake mattress tag that said don't remove under penalty of law sense of humor and i just thought that was awesome and so um i don't know if that's what kept me going but um but yeah i thought that was a good message that is uh that's incredible um you know so many of us don't have questions. I don't know how many, but a lot of people don't have that sort of father mentor to be able to guess true those little pieces of advice that would just push you a little further along. Yeah. You know, and, and it's funny because again, you led with, I don't want to let you down. And, you know, his response was something that sort of just motivated you in the opposite direction. And, and it's just, you know, that, that sort of connection I think is always foundational in making great leaders, right? Like you, you come from great people. You come from, from people who are, are helping you build a foundation of leadership at a very early age, even without realizing it. And uh, that's itself down the road. Right. Because that little lesson that at times when, bullets are flying or whatever, or, or the mission is really tough. You look at your guys and say, Hey man, don't worry about it. You know, we're going to laugh our way through this one. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, look, I was, I was very lucky, like in terms of my upbringing, um, it's like, I didn't come from a ton of money or anything like that, but in terms of uh, stable home life and good parents and, you know, no abuse or anything like that, like extremely lucky. And there's people out there that are not, in f- I'm amazed, constantly amazed now how much I learn about people whose home life as children was not good. Um, it's almost like it's more, pre- it's more prevalent than, than a stable kind of good home life or upbringing, which is terrible. Oh yeah. Um, but it does seem that way to me now. Like I just meet more and more people who had some kind of abuse as a child or, whether that's abusive parents or some other kind of abuse. Um, Like I just did a podcast episode of my own podcast with Chris Henderson from three doors down who just divulged this awful childhood of abuse. Um, And uh, man, what that must do to you, right? Like when I think about kind of my own mental struggles that I go through, I'm like, man, I didn't deal with anything like that um, as a kid too. And I just not knowing even how to process stuff like that, which I, I just can't even imagine. 
Yeah, it's sort of a vicious cycle, which, you know, sucks. You know, you have a, a, right. a, a, a right. rate that skyrockets and you have kids who spent, you know, a lot of time missing a lot of emotional things that they needed. And subsequently they became parents. And then when they had kids, they focused on themselves and, and needed more time alone away from their kids to get their mental. And, and then we substituted that with technology to give kids to babysit them. And uh, lo and behold, they're immersed in that now. And now you're trying to break another cycle that's gone along. So uh, yeah, th- th- there's my sociology lesson. For right. You. Yeah. Right. I know. And I have no credentials to back any of no, neither do that, I, but I'm saying, yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's look, I mean, I, I talk about my kids a bunch, you know, here and there, but the main goal for me is to fill all the voids that I had in their life and make sure that they don't have them. Right. Like, it's, yeah. it, you know, whatever, if you got something good as a kid, like you did, you want to magnify and multiply that. Like I, I always say, when I say leadership starts at the top and I, 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 you know, when I talk about leadership, I say subordinates will always magnify and multiply what leaders do. That means when, when I say that they'll multiply it, they'll do it at, at a wider level to, in front of more people and they'll magnify it. They will actually take it up a notch. So you, you, you sort of move that line and then they, you know, the line that you cross, they'll cross it a little bit further down the road. So that's the magnify and multiply thing. And I think the same thing works on a positive end, right? If you're getting positive reinforcement, you magnify and multiply it more around you and that, and that becomes infectious. So uh, yeah. I, I think it's, it. that's why I just, you know, you shared that story. I thought it was, thought it was amazing. Um, let's get back to sort of uh, your timeline here. You graduate buds in uh, 99 and, and again, 2001 doesn't roll around just in that short period from where you graduate buds and you get to a team, like what happens prior to nine 11, anything interesting? No, I mean, <laughs> me. I mean, it's training, obviously, but like, you know, we're not, you know, nothing's really kind of going on, right? Yeah. I mean, look, and, and like we've talked about, I, I don't really get into many specifics for my time sure. uh, on active duty. Um, I just think that that's kind of should be kept close held. Um, I just, I don't see the big, it's just a personal choice I've made where I, the thing that started making me want to become a more public voice uh, like I wouldn't have done this podcast, I don't think at all, like six, seven years ago. Um, I was really like, Hey, you know, just, just be private about everything. The thing that wanted me, made me want to be a public voice was my veteran experience, my sort of mental health, chronic illness journey, and what I thought I could bring to the table there to help other veterans. And that's what really started, uh, making me want to talk more, um, and obviously the work I do at the foundation too, right? Like, I think that that's that sort of, they, they go hand in hand a little bit. They're not directly, there's no actual official tie there, but, um, but just trying to give back to the community. I mean, that's what I did at Killcliffe. Um, that's what I try to do now in various ways. Um, so yeah, I just, I just don't get into too many specifics about sure. it. No, and, and, and that's fair. And, and let me approach it from a, from a different uh, angle then let's, let's tell you that. Where are you on nine 11? Um, training. <laughs> so, I mean, were you one of those guys who thought immediately, okay, boom, we're going. Uh, this is this is the call we've sort of been waiting for. I don't know what I thought exactly. Um, I think I probably just thought, okay, things are going to change for sure. Um, and I got calls from people like I think at my you know immediate family kind of called me and some friends as well, thinking about that. Um, but yeah, I think my thinking was things okay, things are going to change. 
you did multiple tours overseas throughout your time in the SEALs. Um, obviously, that includes, you know, uh, a combat experience. You talked before about, you know, everything physical being mental, right? Yeah. And, and you know, the, the experience of combat, uh, and this sort of leads into what you talked about with your mental health and, and post-traumatic stress and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, you know, I'd like to look at it through that lens of of your combat experience because I think it's, you know, one obviously it, it, it one obviously precedes the other. It's a, it's a causational relationship. Yes, for sure. Yep. Not the other. So, um, in your experience, prior to since you had no combat experience prior <clears throat> to deployments, you know, but you train at such a high level to sort of simulate that that feeling and everything else. When you get to combat uh, and and you, you you sort of have to put yourself in the game, so to speak, right? You, you call up to the majors. How much of a gap was it from what you thought it was going to be to what it was? Um, well, I think the let me start speaking generalities here. I think just like anything, the, the challenge with any type of training modality versus the real thing, so to speak. I think, again, is sort of the, like you're saying, it's the mental approach because it's really hard to mimic the, the, what's the right word here? The nervousness, like the tension, the, the feeling of like, this is real and I might actually die here. Trying to mimic that in training is really hard. Like, I don't even know exactly how you do it. Uh, <clears throat> so that's, and that's true with a ton of stuff, I'm sure. Like, let's go with a sports team. Same type of thing, right? Like, so if you think about how you apply that uh, that idea outside of the military, it's the same type of thing. You can practice and get really good at all the skills and everything. But when it's like game seven, five seconds on the shot clock, okay, the skills are there, but do you have sort of the – wherewithal and the presence of mind to stay calm in that moment. That's the real trick. I think about, I coach uh, little kids, little kids, God, they're not even little anymore. I'm coaching teenagers at this point, but soccer, that was my sport. And the, the times where it's the most nerve wracking, where it's all on you and uh, the game's on the line is if, if you have a penalty kick, right. Whether it's a shootout or just a penalty kick in the game, that's probably the most stressed you ever are as a soccer player. And we practice that in in practice. It's like, well, line up and take penalty kicks. But I'm always struggling to figure out how you create the, the tension, how you make it feel like it's all on the line here, because it's just so different. It's so different. Right. And I think that's the trick, is how do you – how do you inject the real sort of fear um, that and anxiety that comes with any scenario like that? That's the hard, that's the challenge. So when combat actually happens to you, that experience of fear and emotion, are, are you recognizing it in the moment or are you somebody who compartmentalized, focused on what was in front of you and then got back afterwards when it was more in, in a more secure area and went, holy shit, that was, uh, yeah, we could have just died there. Um, no, I, I would say, I mean, I definitely, you feel those emotions in the moment, or at least I do. Yeah. I mean, no, I, 
I, I, I, I remember feeling that when you talk about that level of nervousness, you know, like the adrenaline hits you, not in the way that like, you know, oh my God, I can run through a brick wall kind of adrenaline. It's the, I hope I don't crap my pants kind of adrenaline. Um, I, I remember having that, but I, I also remember quickly putting that aside. And then when we got back to camp and, and sort of, you know, went through an AAR or, or had to do the write up on everything that happened for whatever reasons. Um, that's when it sort of hit me a little bit more. And I was like, Whoa. Uh, yeah. Don't really want to experience that again if I don't have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, um, again, I, I think what's interesting about that to me is, is that it applies in so many other scenarios to me and like <clears throat> again moving forward as sort of the veteran it's this like so so take that moment any sort of combat type scenario right like is it mental in that scenario is it mental toughness that's really the issue there i don't think it is um because it's not like okay if there's a physical strain or something like i get it but it's not really that it is it's okay adrenaline's up fear is up uh that whole kind of cycle is going and so can you recognize it in that moment and sort of observe it objectively and so that same idea to me applies to things like ptsd or any of these other uh, mental issues that people deal with right it's that same concept it's like there's thoughts going on right now there's a reaction happening and can I objectively, can I sort of separate myself from that and not allow it to be a detriment at, in the moment, right? Yeah, I I, I want to pause that because I, the, 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 we're going to come back to it when we get to your personal stuff in a minute. But I, I, I wanted to proceed with these questions because I, I think it sort of builds the, the foundation for uh, the rest of the conversation. Did you have conversations with any of your guys or did they come to you and talk to you about the fear about, you know, what was going on? I mean, I, you know, I, I know in that community, it's not a conversation that happens often, but I've talked to people who said, yeah, you know, guys, I, I was scared. Guys came up to me and said they were scared kind of deal. I mean, you know, th those raw human emotions sometimes take over. Yeah. I, I don't recall any conversation like that, honestly. Um, I, I think that, um, as a veteran, um, what I see is, is guys, again, we deal with stuff after the fact. Right. We, we're like done with the military and now we're trying to reconcile things, whatever that may be. And it's, and it can be a completely different scenario for, um, for people. But I think in high pressure jobs, what we tend to do, and, and again, I think this applies to all sorts of fields. Um, and just even people in general, as a, sort of Americans, we sort of, it's like, we're, we're not going to deal with any of that right now. We're going to tamp down. We're going to sort of suppress emotion, stuff it down, because that's what we have to do in the job. But then we're not going to process that later. We're not going to sort of go back to it and deal with it. <clears throat> and therein lies a lot of the, the issue is we don't then go back and go, hey, you know what? Um such and such scenario really bothered me a lot. And I, and actually I'm having a tough time dealing with it. It's like, man, I'm just going to try to <laughs> tamp that and press it down. Right. Rub some, rub some dirt on it and get back in. There. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. With the benefit of hindsight, 
do you wish or think that if you had had those conversations after the moment or in the moment that you might have changed the outcome of not only yourself, but some of the people around you? Yes. Yes, I do. And I, and that is the thing that I I'm trying to sort out like what, how that could, how that could look, because in my mind, I think we could do a lot just as a society to be more mindful, be, be more uh, present, be more aware, quite frankly, of our own mental workings ahead of time. I always tell people I didn't learn how to meditate until I was 45. And uh, again, it was my only answer to any problem was suck it up, suck it up and suffer in silence. That's the answer. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of mission execution. Like, yep. got it. People's lives are online. You're in a lot of pain. Suck it up. Suffer, suffer in silence. Like, keep going. Got it. That's the job. But post facto, after the fact, uh, when you're dealing with like all, whether it's survivor's guilt or PTSD or, or whatever it may be, like not a good idea. Suck it up is not. But the problem is it's the only tool a lot of us have. Like we don't know how to do anything else. The only thing we know how to do, only thing I knew how to do was just to suck it up. It's, and, it's, and, and so like the thought of like having a converse, the thought of having a conversation with somebody to say, Hey, this really bothered me. And I really feel this way. It's like, we, I don't do that. Like, that's not how I operate. And, and that is a paradigm that I think has to change. I mean, the whole suck it up mentality, it, it, it's beat into us from day one, from the first day you put the uniform on, whether it's at the Naval Academy, basically training. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, well, it's, gone. it's everywhere. It is, I mean, like, it's not just the military. I mean, how often do you see that basic message? Don't quit. That idea, right? Like, just whatever happens, don't quit. Good. Again, like, that is, we need that message at times. I still need it. I'm sure you still need it too. There's times where I have to think, just suck it up right? Like, stop, don't, don't, you know, just suck it up. Right. But it's just not the only tool. And that I think is the difference. I, from a role-playing game here, what do you mm. think the conversation would have sounded like? Like you guys just get back from mission yeah. or whatever, you know, I mean, you sit you guys down and go, is everybody okay? Well, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. You would have been uh, looked at like with three heads, like, sir. No, I, I think again, I think it starts with um, like an individual approach. Like I, again, I, I go back to a lot of it. A lot of what I have dealt with. It's not that I necessarily needed to talk to anyone else. What I needed was to be aware of my own thought process and understand what was going on in a way that I didn't have to identify with. That's the real difference. And again, I think that's where it doesn't have to be, let's all sit around and sing Kumbaya and, and talk about our feelings. Um, I think we can be more open. Look, let's go back to sort of the, the sort of Viking um, example. I feel like, and I don't know if this is just sort of the Hollywood version of, but it was like th these guys would have some big battle and then they're all kind of sitting around sort of telling, talk, recounting in a way that wasn't professional. It was more just like a celebration and like an openness and they would like mourn the dead and stuff like that. Like even the fact that we sometimes we don't mourn people, that's, that's a big piece of it too. Like if you lose a, a teammate, 
you got to be able to mourn that. You have to be able to cry about that. It can't just be like, okay, God, let's just bury him and like move on, right? Um, oh, okay, like in, in the actual, like whatever the scenario is that you're dealing with. Yeah, you got to, you know, keep going. Got it. But then it, there has to be the, the ability for people to emotionally process these things. Um, and and that's, that's a big piece of it too. But anyway, getting back to your question there, I just think that it's, we need some some individual um, training in this uh, in this arena. I think where we just can start to recognize our own thought patterns. We can we can tap into what's going on in our own minds uh, and be able to sort of like examine it in a way that I don't think we do a very good job of. D- different conversation for a different day. The biggest problem is the military they say openly they're okay with that conversation, but they're not, uh, they don't know how to have it. They don't train on how to have it. Um, they don't check up on people enough who need it to, you know, to have those, those primal conversations about what you're feeling and, and, you know, how to get through this whole, and, and the, the idea of, Hey, I, I, I'm going to suck it up. I just need a minute first. Like I need, you know, I need to take a pause here. We, we, we don't do that in the military still, we, we say we do, we say, you know, Hey, you know, you could have PTSD and still serve and everything else, but you know, there, there's still a, 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 a core group of, what is that personality chart? Like the I E. Oh yeah. It's the, um, all the generals uh, sit in the top left. Myers, it used to be Myers Briggs. I Myers think Briggs, it's something yeah, else right. now. But, but all the, all the high level decision makers are all sitting in that same top corner are all cut the same way who live in group think and don't want any other invasion of the way they think like th- those aren't folks who are sitting there going, we probably need to start having more conversations about the health of our service member, the mental health of our service members. Like they, they're not, they're not ready for that yet. Well, I just, I just think that the trends you see are indicative. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not here to sort of disparage the, what, no. what the military does, but I, I'm not but, either, but it's just, I think more, I just think, I think more sort of on a societal level where uh, all the trends from a mental health perspective are not going in the right direction and suicide rates are up and they keep going up uh, basically year over year. Um, So those are the trends. And so you have to look at that and say, well, what we obviously aren't doing something right or we're not doing enough. And my thing is, Again, I think it comes down to some level of an individual training modality because someone who takes their own decides to take their own life, when that happens, that we usually say things like, oh, it's weird. Like we didn't know he was struggling so much. Or, you know, if you're having problems, reach out to somebody. And those are, yeah, those are good messages. But the reality is when people make that decision and if they go through with it, they're by themselves. By and large, most people don't uh, take their own life in front of other people. Um, it's usually a, they're by themselves somewhere, right? So, okay, how how's that going to get interfered with? How is that going to get prevented by somebody else? It's not. It's only going to get prevented by that person being trained enough to understand what's going on and have a like have a, a plan, basically like a like an emergency plan for themselves. They're the only person that can save themselves in that moment. And I think that that's just a, like an obvious reality that we have to deal with and work with. 100%. And I'll give a, uh, a shout out to a uh, former guest on the show and, and, you know, personal friend and mentor, Mike Jason, who is 
uh, retired colonel in the Army, but he has talked so much about former service members who have privately owned weapons is one of the biggest reasons. It's the accessibility in those moments to a weapon. If you take those weapons out of the equation, we prevent a lot more suicides, right? And he's not saying there should be gun restriction or anything else. He's just saying that, you know, step one, get the weapon out of the house. You know, you don't have to surrender to authority. Just get, if, if it's not there, it's a much, it's another step in the process of killing yourself that you now have to clear with a face-to-face interaction with somebody. Hey, I need my gun back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting, uh, I mean, obviously if you don't have a gun, it's really hard to use one. Right. I mean, like that's a really obvious thing. I think for a lot of Gun owners, that's a big step to be of like, course hey, don't, have, don't have this. I think, though, there are things, there are other preventative measures that they could do um, to make it harder to get in the moment, even in their own home, right? And sure. so, but but like that even... Gun that owners even, don't take that step. They, they don't double, triple, and secure. Here, you have the password. I don't have the password to the gun, right? Like, you know, they don't take those steps. They make it readily accessible, which is the point to owning it, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think the the challenge there is you still got to deal with the issue. Right. So it's like, okay, we can take away the weaponry that would would make this happen, but that still doesn't solve the problem. really. No, it it just might mitigate the the result factor. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, that's that's Uh, definitely I I just put that out there because I think Mike is really smart with that. and, And it's a conversation we're not having enough about, you know, veterans and privately owned weapons and how we're getting from point A to point B. Um but I, you know, I was curious on your thoughts on it. Um, mm. you, you talked about loss before, um, you know, and losing a teammate and everything else. And I'm not, you know, if, if it happened to you or any of the guys that you were with, um, I, I'm curious how you looked at it then and how you look at it now. Um, boy, that's a good question. Um, well, like I said, I think, um, I think in the moment, um, you you tend to sort of okay, what needs to be done here? You have a very sort of logical mind, like okay, what do we got to do here? Who do we need to take care of? Right? There's other people that need to be taken care of. There's family members that need, need to be taken care of. All of that, like a very pragmatic sort of continue mission idea, and that's important. That definitely needs to be done. Um, and but I, like I said, I think the the issue is that we don't then look at how it's affecting us personally as well, and and be very honest about that and able to deal with it. Um, look, some of the therapy that I've been through, different modalities, <clears throat> I ended up crying for like hours. I mean, hours, really intense stuff, and. I had, I didn't even know it was possible. Like I'm like some of the sort of energy that I was expending from a sorrow standpoint was just off the charts. And it really opened my eyes to how much of that I had compartmentalized, suppressed, pushed down over years um, where, and it hadn't gone anywhere. And that was a really big eye opener to me too. It's like, we sort of think that, okay, uh, I feel like I'm going to cry right now for whatever reason. And it's just, I can kind of like resist that. And we think that that just sort of dissipates, like it goes away. 
Uh, and the sort of the crude, the crude example, just adding another more weight, more plates, putting another plate on top of the weight. Right? Yeah. And it's just, it's just not true. It, it literally, it's like, like your body is, has an energetic response that it's trying to make happen there. And it, it's not like it just vanishes. It, it gets tucked away somewhere. It's sort of the crude example I use is it's like holding in a fart, right? If you do that, it doesn't like vanish. Like eventually that's going to come out. It's going to be like, the more you do that, it's more painful. It's toxic. Right. And that's sort of disgusting, but, but it's, I think it's a, it's a pretty good analogy. Um, very good analogy, you know? And so, um, yeah, it's like, um, I, I think now I, I obviously like I, I, I mourn these guys appropriately and sort of think about them as, as appropriate and try to kind of keep their stories alive, all of that stuff. I think what I realize now is you, you, again, you have to figure out a way to process emotions properly in, in, in as close to real time as possible. Sure. Um, and it's not always possible. Like, and I get no, it. That's it's, fair. It, like people need to understand in combat, there's not always time to do the morning, right? Because there is. Of course not. Other of course not. That have to happen. Yes. The problem is, the problem is, is that, you know, when you separate yourself time-wise from an event, yeah. Obviously, your emotions die down. You can rationalize. You can compartmentalize. You individuals can do a lot of different things to the same question from the day after it happened to a week after it happened to a month after it because you just get more. You know, your your brain cognitively will process it more and more differently with time, and so the answer is different. And so, you know, a week down the road, hey, you're all right, is different than the day after it happened, which a month down the road. Hey, you're all right. It's different than a week after it happened, right? I mean, it's just that's natural. So, you know, the the sort of acuteness of the emotion dissipates, and you don't really get to it. That's that's the challenge because people are like, no, I'm good. Like honestly, I, I I'm, I'm okay with it, you know. And and you believe them because you live with these people day in and day out. You fight you fight alongside of them. You trust them with your life. They trust you with theirs. And what reason do you have to doubt their word when they say, Chris, I'm good, good, you know? Yeah. Like, so you, you start, we talk about cycles before you get into this cycle of never really attacking it in the moment when it is, um, for you, was there one particular loss that stood out more than another or stung a little bit more or sort of stayed with you a little bit longer than expected? Um, you know, I, do, I don't want to kind of, hmm. I'm, not asking, a... I'm not asking you to rank them. I'm asking. You yeah. Right. right. I, look, I mean, again, we process things differently. Yeah. There may be a given reason why one stayed with you longer than another. Uh, and you don't have to, if you're not comfortable divulging the reasons, by all means, you don't have to. But I just, you know, uh, trust me, there's a, there's a, there's, I'm walking the dog here. I'll, I'll get you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, no, no. Um, I think uh, they all kind of hit in different ways because I was involved in them in different ways. Right. So there's, there's ones where it was like the first where it was the first person I knew personally uh, that we lost um, that hit in a certain way. It depended on how I knew them too, whether it was someone I went through training with or someone I went to the Naval Academy with because um, there were a couple of those and like what the scenario was ahead of that. So how, um, if I had just spoken to them previously, right? Like my, that, those hit in different ways. Yeah. Um, there was sort of the way we were dealing with it um, in certain ways back home to like my involvement in sort of some of the, some of the after the, the things that need to be done with families. So those scenarios, 
They're all different. Um, I will say I have a sort of an interesting scenario with a family death that was wrapped into all of that as well, where my, I was deployed uh, and my father died um, of a heart attack. Suddenly Um, he was 59. And so I sort of, I got this email from my wife that I don't even know how delayed it was. She could have written it a day prior or something. It wasn't like I was checking my email all the time. And just basically said, hey, you need to call me like immediately. Um, and so I did. And she she told me that my dad had passed away. And so it, that was a uh, and, and the last conversation I had had with him was that he was going to be a grandfather. So my wife was pregnant with our first. And I just learned that a couple of weeks prior. Um, and we'd had this kind of like three way conversation. that We managed to make work for me overseas to tell him this. And uh, yeah, and then two, three weeks later, he died. And so that was the last conversation I had. And so it was a, I had to kind of like upend everything, go home, deal with all that, then go back overseas to finish things out and then go home. And then my son was born like three months later or something like that. That whole scenario for me, I think was a huge emotional roller coaster that I didn't properly deal with at the time. Like I couldn't, um, but I definitely didn't. Uh, and I think that was a that was a real emotional drain on me. And I think what's interesting, too, is like you're trying not to be be like, what was me? I mean, that's another piece of it. Right. It's like, you know, everyone deals with stuff. Everyone's got problems. And you're like, hey, my my problems are not any worse or, than anyone else's. And so because of that, you're sort of like trying to be tough and and all that and be like, don't don't feel sorry for me or anything. But was that hard? Yeah, it was hard. That was really tough. I can imagine, uh, especially you shed a little light on the relationship you had with your dad. That's got to be gut wrenching, um, to say the least. So my, my my condolences. Obviously, it's a oh it's a, yeah. I mean, look, this was look. I know yeah. it was a long time ago. But <laughs> yeah, still, you know, you know, my yeah. heart broke a little bit for you hearing that. Like I just wasn't expecting to hear it. So, you know, um, that moment aside, looking back, when we talk about sort of PTS and and uh, yeah. Men- when you look back on it and you sort of recount your own timeline, was there a specific moment or a seminal moment or anything where you realize that might've been where I took a turn that I was not able to come back from? Yes. Oh, I know exactly what it was. Yeah. Some of that. Yeah. I can, I'll give you sort of the, the vague, um, again, again, I, it's, I don't like turning it into a war story. So the, the, uh, the, the broad brush, here's here's the, the broad brush version is that, I committed a tactical error. Um, so I, I just, I screwed up, like basically in the field um, in a way that I had a real, that I was, I essentially couldn't forgive myself for. Um, and I refer to it as uh, as a sort of like a Bill Buckner moment. And I don't, do you know who Bill Buckner is? Uh, I grew up in New York. Yeah, I know. Bill. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I'm a Yankees fan, not a Met fan, but still he. Uh... Okay. But yeah, so, you know. It was part of the nightmare of my childhood because the Mets won a World Series in my lifetime before the Yankees did. So Okay. <laughs> so you have an interesting perspective on it. So people that don't know, Bill Buckner was the first baseman for the Red Sox in the World Series in 1986. Right, you're a Boston. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a Boston dude, right? So this was, this was like a big moment of my childhood. Like oh, I remember God. this so well. The seminal moments, dear Lord. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, he, so he was the, the first baseman for the Red Sox, 86 World Series against the Mets. And the Red Sox hadn't won since they traded away Babe Ruth. That's the curse of the Bambino. 
and it was game six. It was extra innings. They were tied. They were actually going to win. And then the Bob Stanley th- threw a wild pitch and there's a whole bunch that went into it, but it was tied and there was two outs and Mookie Wilson hits this grounder down the first base line. And Bill Buckner, all he has to do is like scoop it. It's like r- routine grounder. All he has to do is pick it up, step on the bag, inning over Red Sox are back up at bat. And if they win the game, they win the world series, but the ball went through his legs. He missed, he flubbed the, the play. And because of that, Ray Knight who was on second base scored the winning run. Mets win. And then they won game seven as well. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that went into why the Red Sox didn't win that game. The other games, the manager made some bad decisions Again, Bob Stanley threw a wild pitch, all this stuff. But everybody remembers Bill Buckner. It was like the, and it became laser focused on Bill Buckner lost the world series for us. And so, and I'm sure that was awful for him, but for me, it was, it felt like that kind of a moment where like, like on a, on a very, like, this can be the greatest moment of your life. Like you, it was ended up being the worst. And because of that, I just spent an inordinate amount of time thinking, like turning this into a story that was like that. That was a story about failure. That was a story about you're a loser. You are an embarrassment. Everyone else thinks that about you too. Um, Putting thoughts in other people's heads that probably weren't there. And that snowballed on itself and just got worse and worse and worse. And I did that for 12 years Wow! um, after the military, where it was like a daily part of my existence. Um, and my just my self-worth completely changed. Um, and so, yeah, there, there is a very clear like scenario that that did that to me. And what's so amazing to me now is I think back on that. And it's like it's all self-inflicted. And it was basically PTSD. Like PTSD, I think, is an interesting thing. Like the, the, we try to turn it into this hate disorder and disease and illness. Like we turn it into something that's like a pathogen. Like you caught it. I even see that where it's like, Hey, take this test to find out if you have PTSD. Like it's a, you know, right. Like it's a bacteria or something. And it's, it's like, okay, well, what is PTSD? Fundamentally, it is basically thinking about something over and over and over again that bothers you. Right. It's a memory that bothers you. And the, And the thing that I finally learned was it wasn't the memory that was the problem. It was the story I was telling myself about it. It was the, the why I was trying to put on it. Like the, this like narrative I was crafting around it because once I changed that narrative, the, the PTSD went away. Like I don't, it doesn't bother me. It just doesn't like it. And it's, and the memory's still there. Like I remember all this stuff again, my memory's, People's memory isn't all that great. So there's there's details of that of this that I'm sure are not even accurate at this point. But the point is like that it just I I was essentially making a choice that it would bother me. Like that, like, and that's so hard to wrap your head around. I've met veterans, Vietnam veterans, who are self-admitted PTSD sufferers, and they say, you know, they hate that stuff, it just never goes away. And I'm like, yeah, the the memory, what you remember will not go away. However, the way you react to it, the story you're telling yourself, even that piece, this this will never go away, is a story. That's a decision you've made. And and that, I think, was such an important thing for me to realize. And I I learned it through a, a treatment called EMDR, um, which involves these kind of like paddles and you work with a therapist. 
And that completely changed my perspective on this. But I think I, having learned that from the EMDR treatment, I think I could have done it without the EMDR. Like, I mean, I don't know that that like somehow altered my brain or something like that. Maybe, maybe it did. But I think fundamentally, if I had just been able to realize you were just telling yourself a story. And here's the other part. You are putting that story in other people's minds where it doesn't exist. Like you think all these people are thinking about you and they're not. They're thinking about themselves. They're doing what you're doing. And that's that's something that I, it's such an interesting psychological thing about human beings is we think about ourselves all day long and we only really think about other people in the context of wondering what they're thinking about us. Not realizing that they're doing the exact same thing, right? They think about us in the context of what we think about them. <laughs> and if we would all come to that realization, we would we would just sort of realize, yeah, you know, there's not not a lot of people spending much energy judging you or thinking about you or or worrying about your past mistakes. They're worried about themselves, you know. Um, yeah. Um, it's interesting because um, you know the the PTSD component of this whole thing that you carried with you for all those years through active duty into the Naval Reserves and everything. Yeah. 12 years from that event, which spans the time you had finished your military career, correct? Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I wonder because after your military career, look, we go down your resume. I mean, you've done some pretty incredible things. You founded a CrossFit gym in the Virgin Islands. You get hired as a president of a company. It was a fortune, you know, uh, not a fortune 500 company, but one of the, at Killcliffe, the fastest growing beverage brand in the U.S. back in 2015. You know, uh, you did a business to business team, you know, uh, tripled Amazon sales. Like you, you're doing, you're, you're doing high performance, high level work. Yes. All while sort of carrying this, this heavy pack with you. Yep. Everywhere. Yep. I, I, Preface all that by saying, because this even I wonder this in my own head about my own personal story. Can you use your PTSD as a motivator to now try and perform at a better level to sort of make up for, and I air quote the word mistake. Yeah, no, that's so fine. About your, but just whatever you dealt with, your your yeah, to yeah, up for whatever trauma it was. Yep. You know, do you think that's what you were doing? Uh, that's a really good question. I think potentially it was compensatory in that regard, like what you're saying. I, I've never really thought about it in that way. I think I compartmentalized it and was, I mean, always been kind of a well, high performer. To be frank, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, I, to be frank, it's not a question. I, I ask you specifically because I know your background and I see the level that you perform at, and it's natural to me. That for somebody who would make a you know a, an error as you called it tactical yeah. error, the only way to uh, fi- if you can't fix the error, well next time we just double it up and not like yeah. we, yes. it, we're, yeah. we're going to prove to everybody that the error was isolated. It was a an, a, a one off instance, and this isn't how we perform. So now we're going to perform even higher. Yeah, and I think that's probably whether I, I thought about that consciously or if it was a subconscious thing. I think that. Definitely had something to do with it. I think it had a lot to do with my sort of giving, like I, I, I need to give back, right? I need to sure. do more of this community. I think it had something probably to do with that as well. Um, and it, look, it goes back to the sort of suck it up and suffer in silence thing, right? It's like, just keep driving on, just keep trying to like outperform everything and, and suck up this component of things. Uh, and then don't really deal with it. They're just don't figure out a, a way to deal with it, you know? So yeah, that's an interesting thought. I think that probably was true 
Well, I, I, think, I think about it for myself. You know, it's like with my own personal story and, and, and my trauma and what I've um, dealt with. I often say to myself when I'm having a bad emotional day or something with work has frustrated me or life or whatever, I often have to remind myself of the shit that I was in downrange. And I say to myself, you've survived worse. Mm-hmm. They will pass deal with it just remember you've stood in let's you know for the sake of drama you've stood in the pits of hell and you walked out of it today is not as bad as that day (laughs) so i sort of use it as a motivator for myself and i don't know if that's healthy or not to be honest with you because some of that pulls you back into that that mindset where everything is a fight and everything is a challenge and everything is survival and you know you twist your mind into thinking that I now have to do this on my own because I'm the only one standing here. And that's yeah. sort of suffer in silence mentality that you're, that you keep referencing that is more of a detriment than a, than a, a help to us. Yeah. No, I think it can be both. I mean, it, I think it completely depends on the scenario. It's, it's one thing to say, Hey, this is challenging right now, but I've, I've undergone, you know, I've, uh, Endured worse. Past other crucibles, right? I've yeah. I've endured worse so I can make it through this. That's, I think that's totally healthy. It's different if it's if you're stewing on whatever that past thing was. That's a different scenario where you, then it's then you got to be like, okay, dealing with now, good, and and referencing like, hey, I've I've been through harder things, good. I think all that is good. If it's dealing with this thing now, simultaneously, I'm stewing on the thing, and oh, and that's making me think of like what a screw up I was back then, or like making me think of this trauma that happened to me in my life. That's where I think it's damaging where you got to sort of stop yourself and say why am i doing that like what sure right what am i doing here and why i think is is crucial i asked you before about the seminal moment that you knew that things had taken a turn yeah flip side when you're out what was the moment you realized hey i'm not 100 percent, or hey i need to get help or hey i need to to, Uh, have this conversation with somebody I think I uh, there were a number of times where I mean I I understood pretty early on that something was not good uh, or that things were going in a direction where I didn't know what to do didn't know so so you're talking about sort of that that whole sort of snowballing of regret and guilt and all that was the last kind of five years of active duty time and it got to the point where. For me, it turned into a health anxiety thing. So I, I went from sort of regretting these things, feeling shame, feeling guilty. Hey, there's also a whole bunch of guys that didn't make it that were better than you, um, better performers, better SEALs, better men in my estimation. So, but you're still around. They're not. That's not fair. Therefore, well, I, sort of cosmically, karmically, you should probably die of something. It must be something that's going to take you out. And so I would start kind of looking for that. I got a whole, I like became obsessed with like lab tests and things like that. Any sort of sensation I had in my body started, I would think that that's the beginning of some, like a heart attack, started having panic attacks that, and there's a whole system where this, like your limbic system that if you do that and you feed it more danger signals just makes the whole thing worse so I got to the point where I couldn't even like function some days where I'd be super dizzy and brain foggy and tremors and mock heart attacks and you name it. Um, right around that time where I was getting off active duty and it got so bad that um, 
I came home one night from work and I drove up to our town home and, um, and my wife was doing personal training in the garage and she looked at me and she was, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm not. And I walked up to our front steps, to our front door. And I, I just fell down and I was like, just sitting there crying on the front steps. And my son who was three or four at the time walked up behind me. I think he was in the garage with my wife and he just looked at me and he was trying to process what was going on. Like it didn't make any sense to him. And so he looked up and down the street and looked back at me and he said, daddy, there's no monsters out here. And in his, in his mind, I was like afraid of monsters. Like it was the only thing he could figure out. Right. It was like, that's a storybook type of thing. And I looked back at him and I pointed at my head and I said, no, buddy, the monsters are in here. And, uh, Man, and that moment still makes me gets me a little choked up um, because the thing was I I understood that a lot of what was going on I was doing to myself I just didn't know what to do about it like I just I didn't know how to deal with it I didn't know and I was ashamed to talk to anybody about it so I just kept it to myself and I and I operated that way for years after the fact um, so and then there were many other moments after that too where things got really low and I came down with chronic illness, like a chronic illness in 2016 and that made things even worse. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a tough road. I mean, I'm, I'm past most of that now. I still claw my way out of it, but, uh, but doing much better on a day-to-day basis. No. And again, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, it's, you know, recounting those moments sometimes, uh, as I've said repeatedly, you know, sometimes the flashbacks are worse than the actual event, right? Like the, the, the remembering how you reacted in those moments, sometimes eat you up a little bit more because, you wish you had had a better reaction. <laughs> well, and that's the problem, right? It's that idea that is the issue that I wish I'd had a bit, all of that. What we, what we really fail to realize is when we think of traumatic stuff, the trauma from, we use kind of trauma in a couple of different contexts. We use it as the, the event. We can use it as sort of like physical damage that happens to us. Or we talk about it in terms of sort of this lingering effect, ongoing problems, but from an acute standpoint, any trauma, whatever it is, whether it's something we did that we regret, whether it's something that was done to us or something we witnessed, is gone. It's like no longer in existence, right? Like that thing is not here anymore in any way, shape, or form. The only way it's here is in our memory. And, and what's the problem is our react is again our reaction to that memory. It's that kind of stuff. It's like, I wish this had been different. That's the problem. Not the memory. Um, and it's getting past that to to just understanding, well, it's not going to be different, you know. And so you can either spend your time saying that over and over again, or you can say something else. And that's tricky. It's not easy, but it is simple. And I think that that's a really important thing for us all to understand and try to figure out for ourselves. You you say that, you know, you, you've moved on. I'm curious just... Um you know, for you personally, between mourning the loss of your teammates or the tactical error or whatever, like, you know, how much of this creeps into your consciousness still on a daily basis? Very little, very little. Yeah. I mean, uh, like I said, I can talk about it now and I'm okay with that. I, w- I wouldn't have been able to do that eight, eight years ago, nine years ago. Um, so it's, again, I can recount all of this stuff. I can remember it to the extent that the memories are accurate. The difference is, is that it doesn't bother me. I don't 
It just doesn't bother me. I've made the choice that it's not going to bother me. And that's the difference. I mean, I love the sentiment. I wonder how you get to a spot where you say, this isn't going to bother me. It's, (laughs) I I just, and that's personally me. Like, I don't know if I'm cut that way. There are things that bother me that they freaking bother me. Like, I just, you know, like, and you ask why. I don't know why. It just bothers me, and I want it to bother me because sometimes me being bothered by this feels better. Well, okay. And that's a very honest thing to say, right? Like, I, I would say that that's a choice to say, well, I want this to bother me. Yeah. I even, I even think the statement you said, like, that's just the way I am. I often think about that, too. I think we succumb to that line of thinking often. There are things about me that are the way I am. I'm, I am five foot eight. I have blue eyes. <laughs> I have I have brown hair that's getting grayer by the moment. The, the those things are the way I am for sure. I can't do anything to change that. However, I think the way that we operate, the way we think, like our patterns of behavior, can those things change? Yeah, they can. And I again, I go back to this my own circumstance. If if I can spend 12 years beating myself up over a memory and telling a story and change that completely, well then you can do that. That can be done. Um, and some of it is believing it can be done. Because as if every day you're, you don't believe that can happen, well, guess what? It's never going to happen. And that's a big piece of it. If you believe you are a certain way and that's the way you're always going to be, yeah, that's the way you're always going to be. Don't make me change myself now. I'm just so comfortable being You don't have to. But the point is you can. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I often think about like, well, could I wake up tomorrow and be, act completely differently? Act like, like, could I wake up tomorrow and act like you and basically be you? You don't want to do that. (laughs) Maybe not. But is it possible? I think it probably is. Again, not easy, but I think there's a lot of things that we take for granted as thinking we are pre-programmed in certain ways where what we're really doing is making choices. And we've made that choice so many times that it's become a pattern of behavior, but that's not to say we couldn't start choosing something different and, and change that pattern. And I think that's really important. I mean, just like anything else you can learn, you can learn your, how old are you? I'm 40. I'm almost 48. How old are you about to 45? 45. So like you could start learning a skill tomorrow that you've never learned in your life. I don't know what that is for you, but a musical instrument, you know, archery, BJJ, these are decisions like we don't have to just learn these things as kids. And that changes something about what we know about the way we operate about a skill. And so I think some of this stuff of when we think it's like, this is me, I think you you can think about it more like it's a skill. Like the way your patterns of behaviors behavior are like skills. And so change this, learn a new skill, you know, think of it that way. Yeah. There's a, there's a very short list of people who want to wake up in the morning and act like me. (laughs) Yeah. I'm probably not on that list. Party of one. Yes. That's me. Thank you very much. Table is waiting. Um, Okay. So you've moved on from the military. Again, I, I talked about some of the things that you went on to do. Um, I, I'm, I want to hit two more things within, you know, your personal life. One, you end up the communications director of the Navy SEAL foundation. Now I yeah. know that Killcliffe had a, a partnership with the Navy SEAL foundation and a lot of their um, uh, profits or proceeds or whatever it was from Killcliffe sales went to the Navy SEAL. Is that how you ended up 
connecting the two? Still do. Yeah. Um, yeah. That partnership is still in existence. And yes, basically we, when I was the president of Killcliffe, uh, Todd Ehrlich, who is the founder of that company, who's a seal as well. Um, he, that was his mission from the get-go was he wanted to be the largest contributor to the Navy SEAL foundation. He wanted that company to do that. Whether it ever got there or not, wasn't really important. What was important was that the company had a nonprofit mission, even though it was a for-profit company and that it was willing to really dive in there and support the community. Um, so when I came on board, we were able to get an audience with the foundation leadership and make that happen. So on paper, we were the first corporate partner. There are plenty of companies that had given lots of money to the foundation, but we were the first ones who were like, we're going to put the logo on our packaging. We're going to sort of do this on a month to month basis where we've got a contract in place. And, uh, and look, it was a great honor. It's been a great honor. Like to date, the Killcliffe has given over a million dollars in, in terms of cash and, um, you know, free drinks and all, all kinds of stuff. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what um, got me the relationship with the foundation. So when, when I left Killcliffe, I was lucky enough to get the role at the foundation, I think, because we established a, a relationship there. And I, I think it's great. Um, you know, again, ha- having, um, you know, been fortunate to be close enough to uh, both Killcliffe, you know, as an organization and knowing a lot of people who work there, um, you know, their commitment to the Navy SEAL Foundation is is extensive and, and I'm, I'm glad it's still there. Um, also, um, you now, you, you, I know you talked about your show and everything else, but you have your own brand called Rare Sense. Yep. Uh, uh, tell me why you started this and, and you know, uh, how much of this is still part of your own self-recovery, your own self-journey. Yeah. Yeah. It, I started it because of all these things I talked about. I finally got to this point where I, I got to, I got so low in terms of my own mental health and chronic illness where t- late 2019, like I got really, I almost took my own life and, uh, uh, or at least I was seriously thinking about it. Right. And in that, it was kind of this moment, it was right before Christmas, 2019. It was just like, I couldn't think, I mean, it was in so much pain all the time and couldn't think and just was so hopeless that I was kind of curled in a ball on my, the floor of my kitchen uh, in my wife's arms crying. It was just like, I got to, and I got to just take my own life. Um, <clears throat> I didn't do that, obviously. And instead I just put, took this picture of myself on my phone. And it, it was for the exact reason you said earlier, I wanted something to show my future self. You got through this and it's whatever you're dealing with now is not this bad. Um, and then there was, I mean, it's sort of a long story, but like there were things that I learned out of that changed my attitude a little bit, changed my approach to a more self-centered, I'm going to own this. I'm going to train my way out of this. And, um, and had gotten, had made enough improvement in a year where I posted that picture on Instagram and man, I was so hesitant to do it. It took me like days to have the courage to do that again, be, again because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to draw attention to myself. I didn't want to be a woe is me, but my thought was, all right, if somebody sees this and they're thinking about doing the same thing, maybe they won't, maybe somebody won't take their own life because of what I'm talking about. And I got a lot of good feedback from that, from veterans, from fellow teammates, from other people, friends that w- they were really encouraging about it. And so I thought, okay, hmm, 
maybe I should do some more of this. So I just kind of started doing some of that on social media. And then GoRuck actually gave me a, a little blog where I was writing some sort of me- some mental health stuff. Mine was called Mind Matters. And then I was on a flight and I saw the movie Logan about kind of old man Wolverine with Hugh Jackman as this broken down superhero. And I'd seen it before, but, uh, but watching it a second time, I just, it struck me how much the character was like me. It was like a special operations veteran. He was like broken down. He's drinking too much. His mind's not working all that well. He's all beat up and broken. And I just thought that that juxtaposition really hit home for me. So I wrote this article about it, just saying that basically, and just expressing some of the way I, I felt. And I, when I got, I mean, like I wrote it on a Word document, just sitting on a plane and I didn't know what to do with it. I'm like, what do I do with this? It just, it was like an expression where I just wanted to get it out. And then I was like, well, I heard about Substack, which is where like independent journalists kind of publish things as a newsletter blog. I'm like, well, I guess I'll put it on Substack. So I started a Substack account and I published this article called Logan. And, um, and then I just, I, on social media, my very small social media following said, Hey, I wrote this article like check it out. And again, a lot of people were like, Hey, this is really good. You know, write more of this. So it just grew from there. And I just decided, okay, I'm going to sort of share lessons learned from a mental health perspective, really taking ownership and turning it into a training modality about mind fitness and expanding on that. So for a while, I was just writing an article every month. Then I started, uh, recommending a book along with it which was usually tied to whatever the subject of the article was, something I'd read, which I thought was really helpful. Then I added a podcast to it where I'm talking to either mental health experts or a lot of veterans who now work in the space in various ways, like they're they're counselors or therapists or something like that, or different modalities. Um, And then... Uh, and then I finally got to the point where I was, where I started doing a weekly training too. So I now every Sunday I publish a weekly mind training workout. So it's like a mind workout basically where it's sort of introducing a modality or a mix of modalities for people to work on, uh, on their own that week. And the whole idea is to open people's eyes to what's available and figure out what works for them. Because my path was that it was trial and error of there's a gazillion things out there that you can try. You got to try them. You got to figure out what works for you and create your own regimen, just like you would do with your body. Um, and what I, what works for me might not be what works for you or works for somebody else. And that's fine. That's the way things are the same way. Like you and I won't work out exactly the same way. Our diets aren't exactly the same. It's the same idea. Um, yeah. So it's all published under rare sense now. Um, and that's, I just, it's free. It's, it's a free resource. It's just trying to help. It's mainly directed at kind of veterans or people like sure. them with right. first responders. Yeah. Um, if, if Chris, the founder of rare sense, <laughs> uh, had a chance to cross paths with, um, Chris Irwin, the Navy SEAL team leader who made a tactical error. Yeah. What would he say to him in those moments after? Yeah. So that's exactly the point is he would say, Hey, you got to take, you got to start injecting all of this kind of stuff into your training, so to speak. You need to adopt a mind mental training regimen, the way you're so committed to your physical training regimen. Like, you know how to work out, you get after it every day, you push your body, you push through physical discomfort, all of that. 
you have got to adopt some stuff to balance that out mentally and, and interconnect them too. I mean, that's the other thing. These aren't separate disciplines. There's not mental and physical. It's a mind body thing. Like I was saying, everything is ultimately mental and that's because we're, it's all tied together. It's just an experience. And so, yeah, he would say, Hey, Hey, 20 years ago, dude, uh, start doing this stuff now. And that way you would, you would never have ended up where you were. You know, or at least if you did, you would be way more equipped to deal with it. It's not that there's going to not going to be setbacks in your life. It's going to be perfect. Obviously, that's not the point, but that's what he would have done. How much um, of what you're doing now with Rare Sense um, is as much still about keeping your skills sharp for your own mental health as it is about helping others? Yeah, I think it's it's part of it for sure. Um, and there's, there's a reward there for me, certainly in feeling like I'm helping people, you know, anytime somebody's like, oh, this was great. This, re- this really, I didn't think about this, this way. That's very reward, rewarding to me. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a mix of both for sure. You know, um, because I'm still at it. I mean, that's the other thing is I don't like the idea of being some guru or something. I think that there's a lot of people out there that come at, anything with a hey i'm i'm amazing and look at all the kick-ass shit i did and you can do it too and i'm look at how epic i am i'm sort of like well i've tried a lot of things i've got a lot of lessons learned from that i'd like to share those lessons but i'm still on the journey and it and it is a journey it's a journey in the same way that your physical fitness is a journey every day you got to wake up and make a decision to eat well or eat shit or work out or not work out And that's going to determine the way you feel the next day. And like that determines your trajectory. It's the same thing with your mind. You never win. There's no finish line. It's just a question of, are you engaged in the process? And is the process either keeping you where you want to be or making improvements on a day-to-day basis? You mentioned about suffering in silence. And I would argue that a lot of us veterans um, would admit we are absolutely suffering in silence. Yeah acknowledge that yes i'm struggling but i'm just not going i haven't talked to anybody about it what would you say to those people who are are willfully suffering in silence um and and not sure how to take that first step to talk to somebody yeah i mean first of all do something about it um check out i mean look check out the content i'm putting out if if nothing else start kind of learning how to be mindful, like learning about what's going on with your mind and how you don't have to like identify with it. I mean, I think that's step one. Two is like, yeah, figure out who you talk to somebody about it. Um, And it doesn't have to be a therapist even. It can be a, a friend. I mean, I think you'll find one of the reasons why I wanted to do what I was doing was because like I wanted to be, provide an example of like just being open. You know, like I'm, I started talking basically to nobody, essentially just to the internet of like, here's what I'm dealing with, you know, and people don't have to do that. They don't have to make it public. But what I wanted to demonstrate through that was that the, the, you're not alone message that you hear a lot. I wanted to enact that because it's one thing to just see some meme that says you're not alone. Okay. It's a different thing to say, here's me, like, here's all the fucked up stuff that I, I deal with. Um, and like, it's perfectly okay to talk about it, like through action, right. By, by trying to be that example. So, um, 
figure out a way to do that on your own, whatever, you know, and, and but like I, like I said, I mean, I, I provide all that content so that people can find that path the way that works for them. And it's, again, it's not going to be the same for everybody. So you got to figure that out. And I, but I, I do think that that's important. You got to take ownership of it. It's your mind. No one can, no one can force you to think something other than you. And so you have to take ownership of it and think of it in that way. You're not a victim of something. You are the owner of your own mind. So own it. Um, songwriter, score, music, musician, uh, Murph. <laughs> Uh, at curiosity, did you ever cross paths with Mike? I mean, no, you're than no, here, right? no, I never met him. I never met him. Yeah. I mean, uh, all I know, we're both Long Island boys. So, you know, yep, right, right, right. Yeah. Best connection I have to him. Um, but you know, I, I mean, what was, was there any particular inspiration behind writing that and, and doing, um, uh, yeah, I can tell you the story quickly and I, I'm sorry. I do. I have to bounce here in about five minutes. Hey, don't worry about it. What was the <laughs> So yeah. last thing I got for you, Chris. No, I just want to make sure that you knew I actually I do have a hard stop that I have. I'm sorry I have to cut it short. Um, yeah, so it, the guy who made that film, Scott McTavish, he had made a uh, another film documentary called Ride for Lance, which was about Lance Vaccaro, who was a, a SEAL who was killed in training. And that movie was about uh, these guys' friends, teammates, who did a motorcycle rally in his honor from Virginia Beach to Alaska and back. And those guys were, re- were really good friends. I knew Lance, but I knew them better. They were good friends of mine. And so when he, when I learned about that and he was looking for money to make the movie, I was like, well, I'll give you some money. I don't have money, but like I, I would like to support these guys and what they're doing and, and do this in Lance's honor. But then I asked him, I'm like, can I write a song for the movie? And this guy doesn't know me at all. And I think he was like, uh, because I was giving him money, I think he was like, uh, okay, okay, sure. Not expecting much. But he liked the song that I wrote and recorded. And so he, it's in the film at the end. And so when the Murph thing came around and he was trying to, it's actually how I got connected to Todd at Killcliffe, um, was he was looking for investors for that. Somehow he got linked up with Todd. Todd um, asked him for some SEAL references. He knew two, one of them was me. And therefore Todd called me up and to vouch for this and blah, blah, blah. But <clears throat> I said, okay, can I, can I try to write the whole soundtrack for this movie? And he was like, sure. Yeah. You want to give that. And I think after the conversation, I realized, Oh my God, I've got to write a whole soundtrack. Like, I don't even know if I can do that. So I called my buddy, uh, Jeff Wiedenhofer, who is a good friend of mine from the Naval Academy. He's a phenomenal musician, Broadway musician, post-military, like really, you know, he was a helicopter pilot. And then he was a Broadway guitarist for a decade. Uh, he's incredible. And I said, I need help. I need you to do this with me because I don't think I can do it on my own. And he was like, Oh, I was the Keiko for the Murphy family. He was the guy like who went to the, the house in yeah. uniform for the Murphys. Wow. And I was like, what really? And so, yeah, it was one of those just kind of like the stars aligned somehow. Um, and so he knew the family very well. He'd spent all this time with them. So that's what we did. So we co-wrote the soundtrack. We spent a lot of time working on it in New York um, and did the best we could and recording things in our basements. And, <laughs> but uh but I mean, I think we we came up with a pretty good product, and we were just you know obviously trying to honor the family and 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 his memory. So excellent, excellent stuff. Well, look, you made it through a whole show, and look, you didn't. <laughs> I did. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I have to tell one war story, and I told you you weren't going to have to. I told you there yeah. was yeah. There, there was a, there was a story to tell without getting into any of that. Yeah, no, it was great. It was great. I, I, I mean, love, look, 
that's stuff I love talking about in terms of the the kind of after effects and yes, for sure. that's you know that's a big part of of what what, what the hazard ground is about. You know, it was never intended to be this sort of mental health uh, sort of you know conversation, but it just it, it it evolved into that because of so many of us who who are dealing with it. Um, you know, and I'm not where I am on my personal journey without this show because I've talked to so many people about it until you, when you hear enough people be willing to share it, you you start to realize like, okay, yeah, I, I I'm relating to everything you're saying and I feel the same things. And maybe it's time that we go uh, have some conversations we weren't ready to have before. But again, in, 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 in all seriousness, Navy SEAL foundation, obviously you can get in touch with you there as a communications director, rare sense is the, uh, is the place where they can get it and the sub stack where they can get all the content that you're putting out and, uh, Look, it's it's great to finally reconnect with you again. Yeah, uh, loved it. Let's stay in touch. Uh, I, I hope to to hear from you more. I will certainly check out Rare Sense and all the content there. And, and uh, thanks for the time, man. I really, really appreciate it. It's been great. Yeah, time. yeah. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it, Chris Irwin. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show. Send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.